Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Dallas's Classical Education Graduate Program. With a dedicated faculty and staff drawing on extensive experience in the classical tradition, the Classical Education Graduate Program benefits from the strength of the university's nationally recognized core curriculum, which embodies the UD's dedication to the pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue as the proper and primary ends of education. The Classical Education Graduate Program combines the ethos of this core curriculum with a concentration on the theory and practice of classical education. Bringing these to the working and aspiring classical teachers, school administrators, and home educators around the country. Earn a classical teaching certificate, a Master of Humanities degree, or a Master of Arts degree in classical education. With an extensive array of online courses, the program is designed to meet the schedules of busy classroom and homeschool teachers. In addition, for a limited time, the classical education program at the University of Dallas has scholarships available that can reduce the cost of the program by up to 90%. That's 90, 90%. Don't miss out on this opportunity today. Visit udallas.edu slash classical ed to start your application. Again, that is udallas.edu slash classical ed. Welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Searcy Institute Podcast Network, a podcast about the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture and the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White, and today in this episode, I am talking to State Senator Owen Hill from Colorado. We're going to be talking about the politics of education. Uh, So tell you a little bit about Owen. Among his many, many accomplishments, and I do not have enough time to list them all, uh, Owen is an Air Force veteran. He holds a PhD in public policy. Uh, He's state senator for Colorado and the chair of the Senate Education Committee here in our state. Uh, Owen is an adventurer. He loves to rock climb, fly fish, and of course read because reading is the grandest adventure. So Owen and I, full disclosure to our listeners, Owen and I are personal friends. Our families are very close. Our, Our kids have grown up together. Owen's wife, Emily, is one of my very dearest friends. Uh, And we've been on a homeschooling adventure together as families for many, many years in Christian classical education. And so since the content of this podcast talking about politics and education might potentially feel a little dark, we want to bring some levity into it from the very beginning. So I'm going to share with y'all a text stream between Owen and I going back a little earlier. I sent him this, quote, Will you please send me a couple of bullet points for the bio and introduction for the podcast? A few of your many accomplishments. Owen responds, I have a PhD in making stuff up. I routinely throw my golf clubs, which I think is hilarious because Owen actually played golf with my husband, Scott, today. And um, you didn't, oh, am I correct in saying this was not the, wasn't, wasn't, you weren't on the top of your game today. Is that true? Yeah, if I need to clarify something you just said, <laughs> your husband played golf and I attempted to hit the ball. 
<laughs> okay. Um, he did not think he was at the top of his game either. So I, did you throw any clubs is my question. Uh, not more than three times. <laughs> All right. Bullet point three. My friends like to make fun of the fact that I can't sit still. And you can probably hear the laughter in my voice because that's 100% true. So is there anything you want to add to that list, Owen? No, Heidi, it's been a, it has been a grand adventure, right? There's this, there's this sense in which we're, we're kind of trying to reinvent what education looks like. And it's been fun to do that as families between generations, uh, between within the community. It, it has been a rich, rich time. So yes, there'll be much, much laughter along with the longing in our voices as we look to the current state of education. Absolutely. Tell us about that. Where is education right now in our country? Give us a state of the union on education. You know, if you just look at current circumstances and outcomes, you'll be very tempted to be depressed Hmm. until you consider that it's a great opportunity. Right now, we have failed over and over in all 50 states. We are failing in, in some cases, a majority of our high school students do not know how to read, do not know how to write, do not know how to do basic calculations. And so there's this just malaise about the current state of education. However, within that context, people are recognizing we haven't been doing a good job and they're open to new ideas. They're open to suggestions. You know, when I was growing up to be homeschooled, was kind of this mark that you're some crazy person. Right. Now to be homeschooled is you're almost viewed as, you know, people find out we homeschool and people have this look like, wow, I wish we had the courage to do the same thing. So there is this increasing recognition of the failures of our education institutions, as well as a, a longing for what's next. And so to me, it's the perfect time to be engaged in the public policy side of education. Huh. So to you, it feels like an opportunity, not a tunnel of darkness. Look, most of politics is a tunnel of darkness. (laughs) Um, We could spend hours talking about all the problems. But one of the bright spots is the education side, where Republicans and Democrats alike recognize we're not doing a good job. Every single person you talk to will own up to the fact that public education needs a lot of work. So it's a great time for a Christian to step in and say, let's talk about what it means to build a foundation on goodness, truth, and beauty, whether it's explicitly through Christian schools or whether it's implicitly through a lot of the neat schools that are standing up, whether charters or, or, or some of our even more local neighborhood schools. Right. So let's talk for a minute about kind of the nuts and bolts of your job where the rubber meets the road here at Forma. uh, We explore the intersection of classical thought with contemporary culture. So we're a a community of classically minded people, whether we're in education or uh, whether that's simply for our, our own personal growth or in some other vocation or capacity. But we're always interested in talking to people like you who have uh, a love of the great tradition, a love of the great heritage, have immersed yourselves in it, and are doing real things in this cultural moment. You're a state senator, and you're the chair of the Senate Education Committee in our state. What does that mean? What role do you play? Heidi, my personal view on this is... I don't know. I can't say what is best 
for your children, for Jack and Lucy and the, and the almost million other children out in Colorado right now, I don't know exactly what's the best experience for them. But part of my task is to make sure they do have a good education experience. And part of the way we can do that is through our, our choice programs in Colorado, where one in five children in Colorado will choose what school they go to. And there's a real power on that. There's a power that says, look, it's up to the parents to figure out exactly what is best for their personal circumstances. But, but we, we know this. We don't complain nearly as much about the things we choose in our lives. We like to complain about the things that we don't choose, that we feel like are chosen for us. So my personal philosophy as a state senator is to create an environment where we use public tax money to make as many high quality options as possible. Now I know, right, you and I can talk about this, some of these schools are gonna be pretty atrocious schools, but I'd rather have that freedom and the opportunity to create some of the great schools that we have, rather than to have the hubris that me and a few other state senators somehow understand exactly what every child in Colorado needs. And that in my mind is what we've done in the past. We've had a one size fits all education policy rather than the opportunity for school leaders, for teachers, and for parents to be creative about the best education experience that their children need. Right. How has that played out in Colorado and maybe even beyond it? Has there been resistance to that idea or people embrace that? You know, a majority of people have embraced it, but as in any real change, there is significant resistance. There are a lot of people whose job depends upon the traditional way of doing things. Namely, we divide everyone up by their zip codes and then we decide what school you go to based on your zip code. Right. So rather than deciding and creating schools based on your personal attributes, uh, rather than your, your children's situation and what they need, there are people who really think all of the resources should be controlled by the zip codes. I call it, they have a monopoly over the kids in their zip code. And I don't think zip code should be destiny. Hmm. I, I think your ability to choose, and, and it's not... It's not even monolithic in terms of your choice. It's not good schools versus bad schools, right? You and I have talked about it for our own children. There are schools that would be great for our sons, and there are schools that would be great for some of our daughters, and there are schools that would be great for other of our daughters. And then a few years later, as they mature, maybe the hormones kick in. You, you never know. They need a different experience altogether. So it's this evolutionary process with engaged parents and engaged teachers and, and my view is, as a state senator, I have very little ability to affect that outcome other than to give you and the teachers and your children the, the best options possible. Right. So one of the accusations that is sometimes leveled against those of us in the classical education renewal is an accusation of elitism. Right, that you are, we're, we're kind of taking this heritage of these dead white males and forcing it upon students and teachers and this classical model that is just going to be kind of elitist and pie in the sky and create some kind of separation between ideas and reality. As a state senator, you certainly can't implement classical education everywhere. We know you believe in it and that you love it. Uh, what 
kind of how have you reconciled those things, speaking to the accusation of elitism and your own personal ideas about education and how you play those out in your vocation? Look, first of all, it's helpful, I believe, for us to define what do we mean by elitism. Right. If by elite, in my mind, we're not elite by saying we want everyone to be successful, emotionally healthy, intellectually connected to their world. There's nothing elite about that. We want every single human being to do it. That's part of what it means for me to be pro-life. That's part of what it means for me to love my neighbor as myself. But sometimes we can be guilty. Heidi, in my experience of being like that Pharisee, right? You hear about the Pharisee pointing to the publican and praying and saying, hey, thank God I'm not like them. And we can do that. We can look at some of the other people with other educational experiences and say, thank God I'm not like them. And, and, and we are guilty on that front. And that is, that is between us and between God and, and our neighbor. We need to hold one another accountable for that. We're not better for having gone through the classical model, but... I certainly hope that every single child out there gets to wrestle with these two basic questions. Who am I and why am I here? And because our modern education is just about teaching basic facts and not wrestling with these ideas, um, I I think it's part of the reason we're seeing the suicide epidemic that we see Hmm. because we can't deal with the fundamental angst of what it means to be humans in a broken, fallen, messed up world where somehow we still have to be salt and light. Right. So along the same lines, Owen, we've had several conversations that have stuck with me, kind of lodged themselves in in my memory, Uh, gathered around your table, kids off playing, uh, we're sitting and eating a meal together. And Emily and I will be, say, waxing eloquently about our classical ideas and the things that we believe in and how we're implementing those things with our kids. And I remember a couple of times when you have intervened and said, yes, I agree, but you don't know what it's like out there. You don't know what a lot of these parents are dealing with. There's no question of reading Plato in seventh grade or when are we going to launch the Latin curriculum, whether in elementary school or, uh, or as the kids get older. So can you speak to that a little bit? Um, to our classically minded listeners, what do we need to know from the trenches? Yeah, you know, it's, I hate to say so much of what we've said for a long time is coming true. Hmm. When we see the breakdown of the family, when we see, right, (laughs) Elliot talks about we're distracted from distraction by distraction. If that doesn't define our modern age, I, I don't know what does. We're, it's almost like we're unable to ask these questions be, because we're so distracted from it. Uh, and, and maybe first of all, it's, it's recognizing a, a, a bit of compassion. Hmm. Um, I, I, I confess I, I'll come at these things with a um, we know better than other people mentality. We've talked about that temptation. Right. And yet every single person you see around you is made in God's image, wrestles with the same things we wrestle with to say, what is my place in all this messed up world and all this mixed up world? And and the reality is classical education, in in my experience, is one of the few opportunities to address that. Not classical just because of the knowledge, but classical from the, the understanding that we are thinking, we are feeling, and we are doing beings. And all three of those need to be blended up. Sometimes we just think classical is about thinking about something. 
but we recognize we feel angst. We feel worry. We feel concern about what we see going on around us. And we're doing beings. Look at the end of the day, most of us, like we can't sit still. And maybe I'm speaking from a guy's perspective, but I know some of my girls as well. Education becomes real when we do something. And so if they're not getting that in the family environment, which in many cases they're not, right? In many cases, the expectation is you just watch TV until you sleep and then you go back to school. Part of our compassion in our heart needs to be how do we create schools that give these children all of those opportunities to express their thoughts, to, to create new thoughts, to express their feelings, to shape their current feelings, and, and to and to create themselves, to be co-creators as we know we're called to be, um, and, and to learn to get better at that. Hmm. Yeah, you've always had a zeal for action. That's something that motivates you, whether it's rock climbing or politics. So you've, you've had to balance those things, harmonize them is probably a better term, right? This, this need to produce pragmatic action in the real world that you're doing on a day-to-day basis in policy issues with families coming from all walks of life, all income levels, all education levels, and you're representing them in terms of making policy for our state. Where on the other side, uh, you're, you're very influenced by the classics. Are the classics, is classical education practical? Can it do something or is it just ideas? Absolutely, it can do something. I, I mean, if you want to understand some of like modern day sports, there is no better explanation for that than Achilles refusing to fight because he's been shamed by Agamemnon. These are fundamental human questions. Sometimes, though, we teach it from the standpoint of, look, if you just get the education model right, we'll cure original sin. And and that's tomfoolery, right? That is where we have to look back on ourselves and say, maybe that's where the elitist accusation comes from. We're not going to cure original sin. Classical education won't replace our need for a, a savior. It won't replace our need to be to enter into God's work, that we're not independent on our own. It doesn't work like that. Um, but, but that being said, I, I can't remember the last day that hasn't gone by that there's some like, you know, you feel like Horatio at the bridge, that, you, you know, you feel like Odysseus, um, you know, up against fearful odds, uh, that you don't wrestle with this longing to get to some better place, that you don't sit and say, with, with it, it, whether it's in work or politics, and say, which way should I go and think potentially two roads diverged in a yellow wood? And, and we all have to make decisions. And we know that everyone who's gone before us has wrestled with that. And, and Chesterton, I, I think, haunts me in his statement that education is the soul of a society as it passes from one generation to the next. And, and we are fools if we think that the souls of those who have gone 3,000 years before us don't wrestle with the same things that we wrestle with. And those, those works that have stood the test of one, two, 3,000 years are probably the ones most able to deal with the poignant struggle that we have in our modern era. And so to me, classical education represents the best opportunity to solve the angst we wrestle with right now. Right. Right. I agree. I really love that. Thank you, Owen. So you, let's talk about Owen Hill going to work every day when Senate is in session. 
you're fighting battles, you're having conversations, you're advocating for bills. How do you take our great tradition? How do you take your classical mind into work every day in politics in contemporary America? Heidi, that's a great question. And I, it's something I still ask myself. So if I, if it sounds like I have a final answer, I, I apologize on that front, right? In some ways we recognize that when you look through history, we still haven't cured original sin, right? We still haven't solved the basic human condition of the question, you know, who am I? Why am I here? And, I, and so the first, the first approach is an aspect of humility to recognize that, look, if Republicans had their way and could, could do everything that we say we're going to do, we're not going to solve the human condition. And then if Democrats have their way and do everything Democrats say they want to do, we're not going to solve the human condition. That truth is not isolated to a party and truth is not isolated to a time. Um, we, you know, there's a recognition that those who have gone before us have a voice. If I'm going to quote Chesterton again, he talks about the democracy of the dead. Namely, those who have gone before us have a vote and have a say in what we experience today. And and to be too quick to change those just because we we feel like it, just because we think it's not appropriate, most of my task and most of what I do, this is why I call myself a conservative, by the way, is how do we cling to that which is good while allowing it to morph into whatever modern experiences we have? That that to be to cling to what is good, uh, it before the internet probably looks very different than what it does to cling to what is good after the internet. Um, we have a whole new set of skills and, and personal restraints and limits we place on ourselves now that we never had to think about before. And, and yet we, we haven't done ourselves a favor or our kids a favor if we don't recognize that it is our job to actively bring truth into our current experience. And, and that's part of what we have to do in the law too. Right, right. Well, and the classics have a lot to say about statesmanship and about the governance of a just society. Uh, I think of Aristotle and his humane definition of the city, saying that the, the size of a city should be limited so that if a man in the city square in the center of town cries fire, the watchman on the wall should be able to hear him. And that is how big a city should be. So obviously we've come a long way since Aristotle. And some say that the classics are so idealistic, but I also think that is an extremely practical and pragmatic definition of a city. Absolutely so. And this, the, so the classics do speak to statesmanship uh, and what it means to be a just and virtuous society. How has that shaped you and your statesmanship and leadership? You know, that's a great question. Part of the task is, again, in knowing ourselves to recognize what motivates us. And I'll own up to the fact that this notion of glory is very important to me. I, I, it's a God-given notion. I will. We, we can argue. We can talk about Paul in Romans eight, talking about the future glory to be um, that we are working towards. Uh, but but glory is a significant part of that, and that's what motivates, in my experience, what motivates 
most of the politicians I interact with. It's a desire to be known, to be known that our actions and our choices actually make a difference. They make an impact. You know, to use the common vernacular, it's to leave the world better than we found it. Uh, it that's a big deal. And yet, we're kidding ourselves if we think somehow that's new. When you look at, right. you know, Henry V's St. Crispin's Day address um, in Shakespeare, right? He says, look, if, if people wear my clothes, it doesn't bother me. If they eat my food, I, I don't covet gold. He said, but if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. And yet that's the line he uses to motivate his men uh, for, for this, this grand battle. When he says, for he today who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, right? This idea of we are bound together and being remembered and being known. And I think that's, I think that's healthy, but, but also then being able to point to a poem like Ozymandias and Percy Bysshe Shelley saying, right? He's got this sign that says, look on my works, ye mighty, in despair, and then he looks all around and he says, nothing beside remains but the lone and level sands. And so to recognize that just to define ourselves by our own glory, even that is empty and failing. So there's a context, there's a humility in recognizing that every single person struggles with this. And, and, and we, as citizens, do ourselves, Heidi, I believe in injustice and casting all the aspersions we want to on politicians. Hmm. politicians in many cases have stepped up to the plate to do what they think is right. They want to be known for it. We all make mistakes and yet it's a necessary part of what we do. And, and, and that too has been helpful in, in giving compassion on some of the people you work with and how much they long to be recognized that their lives have meaning and significance. And don't we all want that? Yes, we do all want that. And we are all, I agree with you, born with a longing for glory. And because we are creatures made in the image of God, our full glory can be embraced when we are imitating Christ, when we are imitating that whose image we were made in. And I think that the great tradition has a lot to say about that, especially to people who are in leadership like you are, uh, beyond you know, this little bubble. There's, there's a tendency in classical education and with uh, people who are drawn to these old books that not a lot of people are reading in modern times. There's a tendency to kind of seek out a bubble in which to practice those ideas. And that's a good thing, rightly so. We want a place to be able to have the full scope of the education that we desire to have and to offer to the next generation. But uh, as a state senator, as someone in politics and in the public square, you don't have that luxury. You are constantly uh, engaging in relationship and in professional activity with people who are different from you, people from all walks of life, all income levels, all education levels. And so you're not in a bubble. You're really out there. And you're seeing the state of education in our state, uh, in our country, and in our neighborhoods. So what can ordinary people do? Parents, what can we do uh, to engage in a wider sense beyond that bubble? Heidi, it's a great question and one I wrestle with a lot because sometimes I'll admit there's a temptation to despair, to say, ah, there's nothing we can do. It's a lost cause. 
And, and I think that's truly the devil um, saying that. One of the first bits of advice I'll give to every person is your state senator and your state rep, wherever you live, have more influence on your education experience than just about any other politician out there. More so than your school board members, more so than your congressman, certainly more than the president. And so my advice, you brought up that idea of the community as someplace where from the center of town, you could yell fire and they hear it at the watch gates. Practice that same thing in your life to, to spend two hours, not two hours a week or two hours a month, but take two hours on any given year, one hour, figure out who your state senator is, and then ask them for some coffee. You don't need anything. I just want to hear your vision. What are you working on? And then do the same thing for your state rep. That, that our founders did have a vision that representation, a representative government, requires a relationship, a relationship between the constituents and the representative. And, and we've, we've missed that in current times. It's like with our technology and the business of our lives, we've forgotten that part of our duty is all of us to have a relationship there. So that's my first bit of advice. And then the next bit of advice is, you know, if possible, keep a, a positive outlook. It is so easy with social media these days to, to just celebrate the absurd, to celebrate the cynicism. And, and if there's any emotion that defines our times, it's the cynicism from, you know, John Stewart to, you know, late night comedy to our TV shows, there's a cynicism. And, and part of what classical education does is it gives us a foundation for, for transcendent values, for goodness, for truth, and for beauty. And there may be some truth in the cynicism, but I, I've never seen much beauty in cynicism. And so maybe hmm. our, our next task is to cultivate this idea of beauty in our own lives, in our children's lives, in our relationships with our friends. I believe in so many cases, beauty is this transcendent value that gives us the power to get above our, our current malaise and recognize that just as, as God said after he created it, it is good. And to look at our neighbor and say, it is very good. Hmm. Hmm. So, Owen, as we're, we're, we're going to wrap up here, um, although I just feel like it's been five minutes and I want to keep talking, when you exit the political sphere, when, when you move on to something else, whether that's, you know, hopefully in a long time because you're doing really good work, what mark do you want to have made of goodness, truth, and beauty in the public square? That is a great question. One I'm wrestling with, more and more these days is I'm, I'm coming up on the end. You and I have talked about it. it's time to step out of this for a little bit. I feel that cynicism seeping into my own life um, and needing a break from that. Uh, it, right. If we're going to quote great thinkers, it's, it's Lewis. Hmm. C.S. Lewis talking about you've never met a mere mortal, mm -hmm. right? These are either everlasting horrors or these, these beings you'd be tempted to worship if you were to see them in their future form today. And, and I, I don't know that I've allowed that to be enough of my thinking as a politician, but, but hopefully a little bit of that, whether Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter. How do we treat each person as if they are indeed that they're, they're not a mere mortal? They are indeed an everlasting horror, this immortal splendor. And, and how do my actions help point the way to, to real glory? to real splendor, to real meaning and significance. Because the reality is 
having, you know, placing ourselves within this narrative of history does have meaning and it does give you a place, but none of this will give us a place like it will be to stand before our creator and have him say, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into my rest, right? There's a, there's a, there's a purpose, there's a significance, there's a focus there. And sometimes I think we forget that it's our task to show those values to everyone we interact with, and including in politics. So if I, I can leave with one thing, it's, it's this notion that, you know, in some way, Owen did communicate goodness, truth, and beauty, and treat every single person like they are the eternal being that they are. Right. You, you want to see the image of God. You're advocating for not just citizens of the United States, but for citizens of an eternal kingdom. Indeed. And, and maybe if I, I can get practical about it on the education front, is recognizing that all of our children, they're amazingly unique and differentiated. And if I can leave a mark that says every single person recognized, there's no one size fits all education policy that's going to work. And part of our task is to create a set of options and opportunities where our teachers, where our parents, and where our students can, can explore the search, you know, can explore their own search for meaning within, within a healthy context. If I can do that a little bit more, which I, I know I have, um, then, then we've done a good work. Right. Well, and one thing that I hear you saying is the answer is not going to be withdrawal from the political climate from people like us. Absolutely. No, I, I think we need more people engaged and not fewer. The cynicism right now is to say our action here doesn't matter. Uh, and, and the truth of it is that all of our actions matter. And that if every single person just did that, put a little bit of time into it, a little bit of like honest, good time trying to make it better, um, a little bit of effort to know who it is that's making these decisions in their government, I don't think money in politics would matter hardly at all. I don't Hmm. think we would have the cynicism that we have right now. I don't think we would have the hyper-partisanship that divides us and prevents us from coming up with real solutions. So I... As, as often happens with Christians, our temptation is to disengage. And my message, my plea, my ask is to say, no, re-engage. There's nothing that could be more important than to engage and connect within your community. Guarantee it's far more important than whatever we might binge watch on Netflix tonight. Absolutely. Well, and the great tradition speaks to this, that citizenship is participation in the polis, right? In the city part of loving our neighbor is to cultivate a just society that the one-on-one relationship absolutely is core. That's the inner circle, right? But outside of that, there's also then a society in which we dwell as citizens. And part of a classical education is raising up the next generation to rightly and justly participate in that larger society. Absolutely. And to train our children, to, to bring them up on this recognition, to, to know what it's like, to understand the cost. Um, this is what we love about teaching right, history within the classical tradition. We see how many people have given so much so that we can have what we have today. And to recognize our task is not as consumers, but as, as further investors, as those who further sacrifice 
so that our children and our children's children and our children's children children can look back and say part of what we have is is because of the heritage that, that we were given. And that's not an easy thing when the culture around us constantly tells us, no, you're happy based on what you can consume. And an investment in the future is the opposite of consumption. It's actually delaying our consumption, delaying our gratification, knowing that this is a, a hope that it pays off some generation probably long after we're gone. Right. Well, Senator Hill, thank you very much for joining us today on the Forma podcast. Thank you for the work that you do in advocating for citizens in the public square. We surely appreciate your time and your wisdom for us today. Heidi, thank you so much. It's been a delightful conversation. And listeners, thank you for joining us on the Forma podcast on the Circe Podcast Network. We'll see you next time exploring the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.